Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. She was forcibly divorced from the Duke and sentenced to an indefinite jail term, which she served at ever more remote castles in Kent, Cheshire, the Isle of Man, and finally, from 1449, Beau Maris on Anglesey. Gloucester was personally shaken by the loss of his wife, and his public standing never recovered from the scandal. His credibility and the scope of his political influence were at a stroke smashed. With Gloucester's fall, Cardinal Beaufort's influence grew. He had long been the largest financial creditor of the crown, and a consistently cautious voice on the royal council. But in 1442, the cardinal abandoned his own long-favoured policy of containment and reconciliation, and turned heedless aggressor. He persuaded the council and parliament to permit a military expedition to France, led by his nephew John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. His purpose was ostensibly to join up the two main blocks of English power in Normandy and Gascony by conquering further territory in the region around Men. Somerset's expedition, undertaken in the late summer of 1443, was an aimless fiasco, which looked like a shallow attempt by the Beaufort family to endow themselves with booty seized and lands conquered in central France. It annoyed Richard, Duke of York, who succeeded Bedford as Lieutenant of France, only to find his authority undercut by Beaufort's independent commission. And it wasted a vast amount of money. Somerset died shortly after his return, humiliated by his failure and very possibly driven to suicide. Cardinal Beaufort now joined his rival Gloucester in being forced into effective political retirement. All this left England with an acute need for peace. Suffolk, now left as a chief force in English politics, was determined to meet the challenge. He departed for France early in 1444, with the aim of taking decisive action to bring a temporary halt to warfare. He came back with Margaret's hand in marriage as a seal on an agreement with her uncle Charles VII for a two-year truce, a window in which to negotiate for a longer and more lasting peace. Following the usual diplomatic protocol, Suffolk had personally stood in for Henry and married the fourteen-year-old Margaret by proxy. In the presence of the French king and queen, and a vast array of French nobles, he had taken the girl's hand and slipped on the marriage band in the cathedral at Tours, on May the 24th, 1444. The first response of all who heard about the match was apparently one of joyous relief. 
At the French banquets that followed Margaret's proxy marriage, it was said that the common people made joy and mirth and song, all with high voice, Noel, 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 and peace, peace, peace be to us. Amen. The great English war captain, John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, commissioned for the new queen the most magnificent book of hours, which still survives, complete with a copy of the royal genealogy with which the Duke of Bedford had bombarded Normandy during the 1420s, showing Henry VI as the rightful lineal heir to the crown of France. On his return to England, Suffolk was promoted from Earl to the rank of Marquis. In 1448 he would be raised yet again to become a duke. The following year he crossed the channel to collect the king's bride and bring her back in triumph to her new kingdom. Among his companions on the trip was one Owen Meredith, most likely Owen Tudor, who was now around forty-five years old. So it was that Margaret landed at Southampton on April the 9th, 1445, frail from a long-standing illness made worse by seasickness following a very stormy crossing of the Channel aboard the Cock John. While recovering her health, she slowly made her way from the south coast toward the capital. Her journey took her through rural Hampshire, where her first appointment was at Titchfield Abbey, a modest house of Premonstratensian canons, more famous for the austere and scholarly lives of its brethren than for the abundance of its hospitality. In this quiet, monkish setting, Margaret finally married Henry in person. The king gave her a fine gold ring set with a ruby, remolded from the sacred ring he had worn during his coronation as King of France. Then they made their way together toward London. And so it was that on May the 28th, 1445, when England's new queen rode up to London, she wasn't just greeted by the ranked welcome party of London's azure-clad worthies. Behind them, the whole city had been decked out to celebrate her arrival. London excelled at pageantry. Though the city wasn't looking quite its best, the wooden steeple of St. Paul's had been set alight during the winter by a direct lightning strike, and the city gates were in need of repair, it still had the power to dazzle and enthrall. Streets had been tidied and houses secured to celebrate Margaret's arrival. Gutters were cleared, roofs strengthened to support clambering spectators, and tavern signs made safe to prevent them from falling on partygoers' heads. Thousands of pounds raised by a council grant and public subscription have been spent on a series of eight lavish pageants with spoken English captions, each showing and hailing Margaret in a similar light, as the bringer of peace, the saviour of Henry's two realms, and a gift sent from heaven. The young queen travelled through the city in a litter, the streets thronging with merrymakers, seeing tableau that likened her variously to the dove that brought Noah his olive branch and the virgin St. Margaret, who tames the might of spirits malign. 
She was lodged in the Tower of London until, two days after her formal entry into the city, she emerged dressed all in virginal white, with a crown of gold and pearls, to be drawn in a carriage to Westminster and crowned. England greeted its new queen with three days of feasts and jousting. Soon, it was hoped, Margaret would use her connections to help bring a long-awaited and lasting peace. At the time of Henry and Margaret's marriage, the future of the English royal line was a matter of uncertainty. True, there was little chance that Henry VI would emulate his father by dying anywhere near a foreign battlefield, but as the poet John Lydgate wrote, Experience showeth the world is variable. Life was short, and death could be sudden and unpredictable. The last formal provisions for the royal succession had been made in Parliament by Henry IV in 1406, when it was agreed that the crown should fall first to Henry V and the heirs of his body, and subsequently to Henry V's three brothers and their heirs, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, John, Duke of Bedford, and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. By 1445, Clarence and Bedford had both died without issue, and Gloucester, despite marrying twice, had fathered only two bastards, whose names, Antigone and Arthur, reflected his interest in classical literature and British mythology. He was fifty-five years old. His marriages had failed without providing him with a single legitimate heir, and his disgrace following the fall of Eleanor Cobham had severely compromised his status as heir apparent. Henry VI was thus the only surviving grandchild of Henry IV, and he was near certain to remain so. Who might follow him if he were unexpectedly to die wasn't wholly clear. This didn't in itself put Henry's hold on the crown in danger, but it promised plenty of uncertainty for the next generation. For outside Henry's immediate family, there was a tremendous profusion of men with some degree of royal blood in their veins. At least four families could claim descent from Henry VI's great-great-great-grandfather, Edward III. The first was represented by Richard, Duke of York. Born in 1411, York inherited royal blood from both his parents. By his mother, he was descended from Edward III's second son, Lionel. From his father, he was the heir of Edward III's fourth son, Edmund. His other ancestors included members of many of the greatest noble families in England's recent history, Mortimer, Clare, de Spencer de Burgh, and Holland. Throughout the early part of the 15th century, his father's side of the family had been involved in rebellions in which they were trumpeted as the rightful kings of England. One great-uncle, Sir Edmund Mortimer, had joined Owain Glyndwr's revolt against Henry IV. Proclaiming another uncle, Edmund Earl of March, to be the true heir to the crown. York's father shared the belief and was found guilty in 1413 of plotting to depose Henry V and put March on the throne, a crime for which he was beheaded as a traitor. But if rebellion and ambition ran in the blood, 
It was a mark of England's relative stability during Henry's long minority that Richard hadn't been tainted by his relative's earlier crimes. Over a period of several years leading up to 1434, he had been allowed to inherit all his family's extensive estates. He held the Duchy of York and the earldoms of March, Cambridge, and Ulster, all of which were traditionally associated with the Mortimer family from whom he was descended. His lands ranged right across England, Wales, and Ireland, and his properties included mighty castles on the coast and in the Welsh marches. The collective name given to the large swaths of land on the borders of England and Wales, which stretched in some places as far west as the coast. In truly princely fashion, York also owned stunning palatial fortresses like Fotheringay on the banks of the River Nen in Northamptonshire, and farms and forests from Yorkshire to Somerset. His personal connections reached even farther. In 1429 he had married Cecily Neville, a daughter of one of the greatest noble families of the North. He was knighted at the age of fifteen, brought to court at eighteen, and admitted to the Order of the Garter when he was twenty-one. In 1436, after Bedford's death, the twenty-five-year-old York was appointed to the Lieutenancy of France, a post he was given not just because he was considered a talented young soldier, but because he was, as his commission papers put it, a grand prince de notre sang et lignage, and notre beau cousin the great prince of our blood and line, and our dear cousin. Huge grants of land in Normandy were made to him in 1444, which, at a stroke, made him the most important English landowner in the duchy. In short, Richard, Duke of York, was the richest layman and mightiest landlord in England after the king. He wasn't, however, anything more than that. In the early 1440s, while he was serving in France, there were no suggestions whatever that he harboured designs on the crown. He was ambitious, to be sure, and conscious of his status. His wife Cecily produced a great brood of children. Their first daughter, Anne, was born in 1439. A short-lived son named Henry arrived in 1441, and eleven more children followed over the course of the next ten years. The eldest of the surviving sons, Edward and Edmund, were shown exceptional royal favour. By 1445, Edward, then no more than three years old, had been created Earl of March, and Edmund, a year younger still, had been made Earl of Rutland. The main purpose of elevating York's infant sons to the peerage seems to have been to marry one of them to a French princess. But if these were extraordinary honours, there was little sign that the young duke dreamed of creating a rival royal dynasty. His family's own history amply demonstrated that the exercise of naked ambition was a certain way to lose one's head. At the time of the king's marriage, York was generally committed, like his peers, to maintaining the form of rule by which England muddled along with Suffolk leading government quietly from the household, with the tacit backing of those magnates who wanted to keep an underwhelming king from losing control of his twin realms. 
All the same, so long as the king remained childless, some thought had to be given to the status of those like York who were near to him in blood. During the 1440s, three other families profited from their descent from Edward III, and around the time of the king's marriage, all of them were elevated in status, giving the sense, albeit rather a confused one, of an extended royal family. The Beauforts, kinsmen of Cardinal Beaufort, were the most prominent members of this greater royal family. Their descent, like the king's, came through John of Gaunt and the House of Lancaster. Gaunt's third wife, Catherine Swinford, had borne him three sons. They were considered illegitimate, not unreasonably, because they had been born while Gaunt was married to someone else. And although in later years Gaunt and Catherine had been married, and the children's taint of bastardy removed by an act of Parliament, it had been made clear, very clear, again by parliamentary law, that they were debarred from ever inheriting the crown. In the 1440s, Cardinal Beaufort was the only surviving son of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, but the family continued through the cardinal's nephews, in 1443, John, Earl of Somerset, was raised to the rank of Duke and given specific precedence over the Duke of Norfolk, the head of one of the oldest and most prominent families in England. As we've seen, this grand elevation did John Beaufort very little good, for he died in unhappy circumstances following his woeful 1443 expedition to France. The family's involvement in politics passed to John's younger brother, Edmund Beaufort, who took over the Somerset title in 1448 and fathered a clutch of children of his own. Finally, there was Joan Beaufort, who had been married to James I of Scotland and enjoyed an exciting career in the North, where she served for a brief time as regent, while her son, James II of Scotland, was a minor. The Beauforts were thus closely connected to the crown, even if technically they were barred from any future succession. So were others. The Holland family traced their own royal ancestry through Henry IV's sister, Elizabeth. In January 1444, the most senior Holland, John Earl of Huntingdon, was promoted to Duke of Exeter, with precedence over all other dukes except for York. Another elevation specifically credited to his closeness in blood to the king. John Holland died in August 1447, and his son, Henry Holland, eventually succeeded to his duchy. Then there were the Staffords, another family with direct links to the Plantagenet dynasty. The Staffords were descended from Thomas of Woodstock, Edward III's youngest son, and the bitterest enemy of the deposed King Richard II. In 1444, Humphrey Stafford, the most senior member of the family, was made Duke of Buckingham, and three years later he was, like York, Somerset, and Exeter, given a special precedence. Specifically, he was to rank above all other dukes who would be created in the future, unless they were of the king's blood. Thus, around the time of the king's marriage, a loose sort of succession plan had been made.
or at the very least, there was a hierarchy of aristocracy in which York, Somerset, Exeter and Buckingham all knew their rank. With a new queen, there was now the promise of further expansion of the dynasty. Was a new generation finally stepping forward to take command of England's destiny? The personal relationship between Henry VI and Queen Margaret seems to have been close and even tender. The king's confessor, John Blackman, wrote in his memoir that when he espoused the most noble lady, Lady Margaret, he kept his marriage vow holy and sincerely, never dealing unchastely with any woman. This chastity was in large part temperamental, since Blackman also records that the king was mortified by the sight of nudity and was wont utterly to avoid the unguarded sight of naked persons. When one Christmas a certain great lord brought before him a dance or show of young ladies with bared bosoms, the king very angrily averted his eyes, turned his back on them, and went out to his chamber. He was also apparently shocked by the sight of naked men when he visited a warm spa in Bath. There was chivalry and even real romance. When Margaret arrived in England, Henry kept up his family's tradition of greeting his new wife incognito, dressed as a squire, and only later revealing his disguise. After their marriage, the couple spent much of their time together in the royal palaces dotted near the banks of the Thames, Windsor, Sheen, Eltham, and Greenwich. Henry bought his wife jewellery and numerous horses, in which she particularly delighted. He allowed her to found Queen's College in Cambridge in 1448 to mirror his own foundation of kings seven years earlier. In a warrant for payment to one London jeweller, Henry describes Margaret as our most dear and most entirely beloved wife the Queen. A touching vignette is preserved describing the royal couple during the New Year festivities, not long into their marriage, receiving gifts as they lay in bed together, staying there all morning. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.